I just want to open up with a verse, and it's the verse for, it's our signature verse for encounter, and it comes from Hebrews 6.19. It says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Welcome to the sanctuary church in the Father's house where you are attending the very first official encounter night. And I truly believe that you are part of uh, biblical history because I believe that God's going to do amazing things in and through this program. And you know why? Because you're amazing. And God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And so I want to share a little bit about my testimony before I share a little bit about what this program's all about. You're probably wondering, what in the world's encounter? And uh, why, you know, uh, why did I even come to a church on a Friday night? Uh, but... Uh, I want to share how one day Jesus Christ touched my life, and uh, it changed me. It changed me forever, and I've never looked back. And you're looking at one satisfied customer when it comes to my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that God is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do, and you are who he says you are, and you can do what he says you can do. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to, I'm going to start with my story because it goes back a way, long way, back all the way to New York City. Father, we just thank you so much uh, that your plans are perfect. While we may make plans, you order our steps, and we're just taking orders tonight, and we're just being obedient to the leading of your Holy Spirit. I pray that your love and your power would touch every single person here tonight, and every person would have just a unique, miraculous encounter with you, not with a man, but with you. And they would be changed forever. And they would look back at this night. And it would be a night that they would always remember because of you. Because of your love, your truth, and your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for everyone to be touched by you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I was born and raised in East Harlem in New York City. I'm not sure if you can tell by my accent. So uh, uh, I was actually, I, I grew up in the middle of Spanish and black Harlem, and my mom raised me and my two sisters by herself uh, because my dad left when I was six months old, so I never got to experience the physical touch of a father, never got to experience the love of a father. And basically, the streets of New York City raised me. My mom was an awesome mom. She was a crazy Italian, she's a full-blooded Italian person. And, uh, but really, uh, no mom could do uh, what a dad can do in, in a place like that. It was just a rough area. And my dad wasn't a full-blooded Italian. And because I was what I like to call a half-breed, I got picked on by the Italian guys in my neighborhood a lot. So I know what it means to be bullied, and I know what it means to, uh, I know a little something about abuse, and, uh, and that's why I love talking to children. That's why I love talking to kids. I'm glad that there's some kids, and there's some, there's some young adults in the room tonight. Um, so I went through a series of events when I was 12 years old that shaped a pattern of behavior for who I was going to be for the first 36 years of my life. These events shaped my identity. 
I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what my purpose was. I didn't know how to manage the pain in my life. I didn't know anything. And so I remember one day when I was just 12 years old, just looking for a friend of mine, and I walked into a hallway in my neighborhood, and a grown-up man met me there at knife point, put a knife against my throat, and he sexually assaulted me. And I'll never forget the words he said when he was done. He said, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you and I'll kill your family. And I know he meant it because he was a made hit guy for the mafia. He was one of the most feared guys in the neighborhood, and I knew who he was. And out of fear, I told no one. And I just packed that pain inside of me. I can't tell you the amount of shame and guilt as well as not even knowing who I was. I was so confused. Just as a young kid growing up in a place like that as far as trying to figure out what your identity is. And so that was something that shaped who I was going to be for a long, long time. And I didn't know how to manage that type of pain. I didn't know how to manage that type of event, just keeping it inside to myself each and every day and reliving those moments each and every day. I remember just a few months later, there was probably the most dangerous guy in the neighborhood, a guy by the name of Johnny, and uh, he probably killed more than 100 people before he died at the age of 23 years old. And when he told you to do something, you just did it. So he approached me one day, and he said, Bill, take this $100 bill and go into this building. There'll be a couple of guys there, and they're going to give you a package and some change. And I couldn't tell no to this guy, so here I am doing drug deals at 12 years old. And I get the job done. About a week later, he gives me another $100 bill, and this time when I whipped out that $100 bill to those two grown-up drug dealers, they quickly realized I gave them a counterfeit $100 bill. And I'm in the middle of a busted drug deal. And immediately, I've got two guns drawn on me. I got a gun pointed right in my temple in my head. I got one right in my heart. And for some reason, both guns wouldn't go off. I can still see both fingers on both triggers. And both guns wouldn't go off that day. I know now that God was in that hallway protecting me. He saved my life that day. I just didn't realize it back then. You see, after about a moment or so, I started talking. I, I remember looking at those guys and saying, hey, listen, this wasn't my idea. A guy named Johnny sent me in here. And if I don't come out of here, he's going to come looking for me. And if you guys like living, you better not do anything to me because he'll come looking for you. And not only did I walk out of there with my life, but I also walked out of there with the package and the change as well, too. I knew a couple of things were going to happen that day. One, I was probably going to be in sales most of my life. God had given me really good negotiating skills. The other decision I made that day was I decided not to be a drug dealer. I don't know about you, but I just didn't think getting involved in life-threatening situations was a pretty cool thing to be getting involved in. So I decided not to be a drug dealer. But as far as using drugs and abusing drugs and drinking uncontrollably, there was something to drink, I would drink it. If there was, something to, there was a drug to take, I would take it. And it would be a lifestyle that I would never be, be able to manage. See, I had nothing else in my mind to manage the pain in my life. Not only did I need something to manage the pain in my life, but that's what everyone else did. And that's what I did. And even as a young 12-year-old, my life was already spiraling out of control. But now came the hard part. The hard part came 
because I had to tell Johnny what happened, and I had to tell him that I was out, that I wasn't going to do any drug deals for him ever again. Now, in order for me to have this conversation with him, I, had to, I remember just to get that courage, I remember all these feelings of bitterness, rage, and anger just welling up deep inside of me that have never really come out before. See, up until this point, I was a nervous kid, full of anxiety, fearing for my life each and every day. Didn't know, didn't know a day that I would walk up into my building where I would get beat up or assaulted. I lived in fear. And I just took it all in. I just ran and ran and ran away from all the people that were always trying to attack me, abuse me, or bully me. But I had had enough. I don't know if you ever reach a point where you just have enough and you just implode and explode. Well, I did. And I remember just having the courage to have this conversation with Johnny. I looked him straight in the eye, and I was fired up. I was mad. I looked at him. I said, man, you almost got me killed in there. Obviously, I had some other words to share with him. And uh, I, I, yeah. I come from a cursing family. You're a good cursor when you can put relatives in front of curse words. You know what I mean. So we'll, we'll just end it right there. And uh, I remember telling him what happened in there. And I remember telling him that I'm out. I'm never going to do another drug deal for you ever again. I don't even care if you kill me right now. Don't ever ask me to do anything for you ever again. And I remember Johnny just looking at me, almost with a calm in his face and a smile, saying, all right. And he never asked me to do anything for him ever again. And I learned a couple of things that day. Uh, one is, one is I learned I got away with it because I didn't think I'd survive that conversation. Second thing is I learned that I can deal with difficult situations in my life with bitterness, rage, and anger. You see, friends, I became what was done to me. You'll never think that way. You'll never say it. You'll never say it'll happen to you. But when you have unreconciled pain in your life, You'll become what's done to you. And I became what was done to me. I was the person that if you looked at the wrong way, I'd pop you between the eyes. I was the person that just got my way from just yelling and screaming. I was the person you never wanted to just trigger my anger. I was the person that if you drove up close to me, I would ride up beside you in my car, have you pull down your window and beat the pulp out of you. That just happened on Newhall Ranch Road earlier tonight. <laughs> Just seeing if you're listening. I just want to make sure you're with me tonight. All right. And so that's sort of my introduction to all the craziness of growing up in a place like East Harlem in New York City. And, uh, but God had given me a gift. And that gift was the ability to play basketball. I love the game of basketball. I still do. And uh, I had... A, I had just an unbelievable gift to play at a level that when I look back on it, I know now that it was a gift from God, but I could do things with a basketball that no one else could. I could jump higher than anyone else could. I had a 44-inch vertical leap, which means I could jump out of the gym. I could stand underneath a basket like this without taking a step, just jump up, look down at the rim, and tomahawk a basketball. I could dunk from the foul line. 
I, could, I used to dunk so hard on people that my wrists would often bleed at the end of games. Uh, and I took, my, I took my rage on the court. You didn't want to mess with me on the court. My goal as a basketball player was to dominate and to humiliate my opponents. I wound up going to Benjamin Franklin High School, where I was one of four white kids out of 2,500 black and Puerto Rican students. And, uh, and they loved me. And it was so interesting to me that a different culture, other than my own culture, first accepted me than my own culture, because, because I was a half-breed, the Italian guys, they didn't like me. I got, you know, as I told you, I got picked on a lot. But when I went to school because I could play basketball, they loved me, and I loved them. And it was just a great experience for me. I wound up playing in, in New York City's most famous outdoor basketball court, the Rucker Park, uh, on the west side of New York City. And I played with some of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. I played with guys like NBA MVP legend Nate Archibald. I played with guys, maybe names you've never heard of, like Pee Wee Kirkland and Joe Hammond. Just New York City basketball legends. And those that saw me play still consider me one of New York City's top streetball playground legends of all time. And when you play basketball in New York City, they always give you an AKA, sort of a nickname, also known as. Now, I had a lot of nicknames. Uh, I had a whole lot of nicknames. So one of the nicknames that they gave me, because as they said I could do miracles with a basketball, was White Jesus. Now, while the name had nothing to do with God, I thought I was God. But I was never humble enough to ever let him lead my life. See, I thought basketball was a gift. I thought basketball was something that I came up with out of my own self-determination. I didn't realize that it was a gift from God. You see, on top of all the drugs that I was taking, on top of just my life being completely out of control, not to mention having a sexual lifestyle that would be hideous and completely out of control even as a teenager. I was a train wreck. I was also a prideful kid with a self-entitled mindset, never submitted to authority. I was a train wreck even before my career started. And so, I got recruited by most Division I schools in the country, and the NBA was going to be my destiny. I had no other plan in my life except to be an NBA star. That was my ticket. That was my way of getting out of New York City. That was the only way that I was going to get over what happened to me. I was going to be rich. I was going to be famous. I was going to be an NBA star. And everything was going to be all right. But life didn't turn out that way. Just like a lot of us, we have plans in life, and it just doesn't turn out that way, does it? We get bumps on the road. A friend of mine was sharing with me, as we were talking about the, the building of this ministry, and he said, you know, everyone's on a journey. And for us, tonight here, the journey does continue. And along the journey, we get bumps in the road. We get detours. We get hurts. People hurt us. And we all have hurts. I've been hurt, you've been hurt, and my hurts, they were out of control. Because I went to school, I, I wound up going to a school in Shreveport, Louisiana called Centenary College, where Robert Parrish, who played for the Boston Celtics, went, and Hal Sutton, the pro golfer. And, uh, and I basically went there because my high school coach got paid a lot of money for me to go down there. 
and I did too. And uh, I had a great year playing as a freshman, and I was on my way. My life's out of control. I'm partying every night. I'm sleeping with as many people as I can. My life's completely out of control. And about a week before my sophomore season, actually about six days before the start of my sophomore season, uh, I remember going to a party. And in order to get to this party, uh, you had to climb a little tree. Well, I thought I would climb the tree higher than anyone else. Being that I probably drank about a case of beer and a half a, and a, half a bottle of whiskey that night. I remember climbing up about 100 feet on this tree, and I fell out of this tree, and I busted my knee. Think about the stupidity behind that. And I had to have surgery on my knee. And uh, I flew to New York to have surgery, and during my rehab, my, they were asking me to play before I was 100% healthy, and I wouldn't do it. And I actually had a pro agent at the time, the same agent who represented Julius Irving, you might know that name, and Maurice Cheeks. And he convinced me to leave uh, Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, go home and rehab for a while. And I actually walked out of, of Centenary College on Billy Reeser Post tonight to give you an idea of my pride. And the plan was that he had a friend who was a head coach at Eastern Kentucky University, and that would transfer to, to Eastern Kentucky. And I would play two years after I sat out a year, and I would get drafted, and I, I would play in the NBA, I'd be rich and famous, and everything would be all right. Things didn't turn out that way. When I got there, I sat out a year. The coach that I went to go play for left. New coach came in. He didn't like me. I didn't like him. And I suffered injuries my junior and senior year that would put me out 12 weeks, 15 weeks at a time. And my college basketball career was decimated. And my hopes of playing in the, in the NBA were basically all gone. And it devastated me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle that. But what happened when I got to Eastern Kentucky, when I first got there, I met a girl there. I met a girl there named Carolyn. And Carolyn was someone who was the complete opposite of me. Carolyn was someone who was nice, wholesome, pure. She gave her life to Christ when she was a teenager, but she would want me to tell you that she wasn't walking with God when she met me and started dating me. <laughs> Obviously not. And so uh, we started dating. And I can't explain this, but... I, I was just drawn to her. And I stopped seeing everyone else. And when we uh, finished college, we decided to go to New York. And immediately, uh, we got engaged. We decided that we were going to get married because we were in love. <laughs> I had no idea what love was. Man, I had no idea what love was. See, I'm not walking with God. I have no idea what a covenant relationship is. And so what's important for us is for us to get married in Carolyn's hometown. Now, Carolyn is from eastern Kentucky. Uh, not just Kentucky, but eastern Kentucky, which is the mountains, Appalachia. I don't know if you ever heard of the, the uh, Hatfields and McCoys. Okay, so you, gotta, so you have a rageaholic from New York who's hooking up with a family who's got the most historic feud in the history of the United States, and that's the Hatfields and McCoys. Her grandmother is a Hatfield from the Hatfields and McCoys. First time I visit her house, there's shotguns in every corner of every room. <laughs> Scared me, big time. 
And uh, so we decided to get married in her hometown. And my family, who's never been out of New York, you know, wind up going. So we get married in, in this small little, little church. And uh, so my family all, uh, I love my family. But next to the word dis- dysfunctional is a portrait of my family. <laughs> because they're, they're Italian, but they're, well, let's say they're socially challenged. You never want to take them out in public. Ever. <laughs> Ever. And so my whole family's there. I got my, you know, my Uncle Tony. His last name is Esposito. Okay, he's got ruffles on his tuxedo. He works for the sanitation department. You know, I think you get the picture, you know. I'll make you an offer. You can't refuse, you know. And his wife, my late Aunt Gilda, was wanted by the FBI because at 80 years old, she was confined to a wheelchair because she stole everything everywhere she went. Her alias was T-O-W, Thief on Wheels. Because she stole, she just stole everything. She's a, I mean, she's a professional kleptomaniac. I mean, quick story before we get to the, the other start. My mom and my, my aunt and uncle baby retire in Florida. Florida has never been the same when New Yorkers go. And so, you know, when they get tired of the city, and they find this nice restaurant to go to, and my aunt Gilda loves the place settings, so she steals the place settings <laughs> at the end of the night. Forks, spoons, you know, plates, knives, everything, and second night, steals the whole place settings. Third night, takes the whole place settings. Fourth night, they change the place settings. So she calls the manager over, and she to- this is what she tells the manager. Who do you think you are changing the place settings? I'm one set away from completing my set. <laughs> How sick is that? That's pretty sick, right? And so, that's my family. And so, and, and so they're all there, okay? And then my best man is, is, is my brother-in-law, Michael Imbriali from Brooklyn. He's like, you know, he's a real New Yorker. You know, they, they call me Jethro, you know, because I lost my accent in New York City. When I go home, they actually call me Jethro. But he's like the real New Yorker. He's got a cigarette in one hand, comb in the other. He's like, oh, you're this is unbelievable, you know? And he's my best man, and, and I didn't realize you got pre-marriage counseling right before you got married in this church. So we're getting ready to come out, and I'm a nervous guy, you know, by nature, and, and I'm sweating, and I mean, I'm just, I'm just about ready to have a nervous breakdown, I'm having anxiety attacks, and, and, and the preacher starts talking to me, and my brother-in-law thinks this is a movie for my cousin Vinny, <laughs> and this preacher opens up this road, this, this window that goes out to this country road that went out to nowhere, and he starts talking to me, and, and I mean, he had these eyes that still scare me to today. And the preacher said, he said, boy, he said, this last wedding I've done was just, that's pretty good for a New Yorker, right? I know, I know. I said, it's the best I can do. It's the best I can do. He said, this last wedding I've done was this cousin of mine. And I told that boy, you can crawl out that window. But if I shut that window, you're going to go in there and marry that girl till death and death. And he's pointing his finger right at me <laughs> for death alone. And I don't know where this is in the Bible, but he says, do you understand me, boy? And just at that moment, when I'm just so scared, my brother-in-law is on the floor laughing during the alligator. (laughs) And he runs out. He leaves us. He leaves me with this man. And he runs out, and he yells to 200 people, you got to come in here and see what this guy's telling Billy. That was my wedding day. (laughs) It's safe to say we didn't get off to a good start. But we did. 
And, uh, and life was okay for us. Uh, here's what I know now. I know now uh, that it's impossible to love someone else the way God intended us to love another person until we first receive the love that God has for us that can only come through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. And so we decide to, to live in the Bronx, beautiful vacation spot, and uh, Carolyn gives birth to our daughter Kristen 29 years ago. She'll be 30 on April 1st, uh, my little baby Kristen. And the fact of the matter is my family wasn't important to me. Uh, my family wasn't a priority to me. After about uh, two and a half years of never touching a basketball, I walked by some courts one day, and I saw some people playing, and they asked me to play. Two weeks later, I'm playing in all the pro tournaments in New York City, and I'm starting to play pretty good. I'm playing so good that I'm, I start playing in the Rucker Park tournament again. And I start getting some offers to play professional basketball in Europe. And I'm a couple of weeks away from getting a tryout for an NBA team, and I know I'm going to make it. And right before that tryout, I suffered an injury that my doctors told me I could never play basketball ever again. Now listen closely. Out of all the things that I told you that hurt me growing up, the abandonment of a father, the sexual assault, getting picked on, always fighting for my life. Nothing hurt more than the final realization that I wasn't going to play in the NBA. To manage that pain, I take my drug use to a whole new level. I remember doing so much cocaine at my sister's wedding that I lost my eyesight for a week. And here's the problem. When you don't take personal responsibility for your own problems, you tend to blame the ones you love the most. When I didn't take personal responsibility for my own issues, because when I looked inside here, I didn't like what I saw, I started blaming my family. I started blaming Carolyn for my own personal problems and my own failures, because I never wanted to accept personal responsibility for my life. And I started looking for answers in all the wrong places. And one day I had a conversation with a person I should have never had a conversation with. That conversation led to an affair. And that affair led to other affairs. You see, all this time I'm playing God thinking I'm invincible because, I, because New York City's a big place to hide. And I start living this sick, secret lifestyle that I think no one else knows about. And the fact of the matter is I'm holding on by a thread. Now, while all this is going on, Carolyn recommits her life to Jesus Christ. She starts walking with God again. She starts praying. She starts going to see, she saw Billy Graham at Central Park. She finds a church to go to. And God speaks to her one day and says, leave New York. God told her to raise our daughter in Kentucky. And Carolyn approached me one day and said, I'm tired of New York. I want to raise our daughter in Lexington, Kentucky. And when I heard that, I thought, this is great. I could run. The problem with running is wherever you go, there you are. And all running to Kentucky meant, for me, was I found new people to get high with, new people to get drunk with, and I found new people to have affairs with. My good friend Max Apple, who's a state director for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Kentucky, always told me, Bill, you're either running to the cross or you're running from the cross. I was running from the cross. Because that's all Kentucky did for me. But when we got there, 
Carolyn found the church. And every week that she would go to this church, she would make new friends, people like you. And she would ask them to pray for me. And I didn't realize it, but she would do this every week. And she enlisted hundreds of people to pray for me. Because she doesn't play fair. <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds of people are praying for my salvation. She has no idea what's going on in my life. No idea. And, uh, and when God gets involved, friends, things are going to come to a head. And they did for us. You see, one day Carolyn walked in on a conversation that I was having with another person. And in one second, years and years of lies and deceit were exposed. And when she found out about that, she was devastated. And when she found out about that, I told her about everything else. I don't know what came over me. Maybe it was because I was just packing it away for years. It's hard living one life. I was living two lives. And I told her about everything else. And that just ended it for us. That just devastated her. She didn't know. And all I knew at that moment and that season in my life was that we were done. Obviously, she was upset. She was mad. And there was no way we were ever going to be reconciled. There's no way she could ever forgive me. We were going to get a divorce, and that was it. And so after about two and a half weeks of screaming and crying and yelling, she goes back to that church, and a pastor prayed a simple prayer over her that night because we had a meeting to discuss the details of the divorce. And a pastor prayed a prayer that God would give her peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, sometimes it's simple prayers that just have as much power as our long prayers. And Carolyn can tell you, on the drive home, on Route 68, on Harrodsburg Road in Lexington, Kentucky, in front of Ramsey's Restaurant, where she had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. She had an encounter with God, and she will tell you that God simply took it away. She prayed that night, Lord, I can't do this. There's no way I could ever be with that man again. There's no way I could ever forgive him. And God came into her car came over her, and she had an encounter that changed her life forever. And when she walked through that door that night, I didn't even recognize her. She had a peace on her that I've never seen. She, she, she had a confidence that I've never seen. And when she started speaking, I knew it was God speaking to me for the first time, and I was getting ready to have my first encounter with the living God who lives and breathes today. Because Carolyn looked at me with a confidence. And here's what she said to me. She said, Bill, God would never give up on you. And I'm not giving up on you. God can forgive you for anything that you've ever done. And so can I. Friends, to this day, she's never held me hostage to my past life. She said, I don't know if I could ever forget, but I'm willing to give it a try if you're willing to give your life to Jesus Christ. At that moment, I knew that God loved me despite me because he just demonstrated his love to me by giving my wife the ability to not only forgive me, but to introduce me to the lover of my soul. And friends, that night, 
I surrendered my life to the care and control of Jesus Christ. I saw my whole life pass before me. I saw where God was there every step of the way, loving me, pursuing me, even protecting me. And the only thing I told God that night was, Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do just as long as I know it's you. When I saw my whole life pass before me, I know that I was dying. I was a dead man walking. I was dying spiritually. I was also dying physically. I just didn't even know it. And so I start running after God. I start walking with God. I didn't know what God's word said about anything. And I heard God's voice that night. And I heard this. Now go fight for your family. And I went to go fight for my family. I knew we were going to be okay. Because I knew that I was never going back to my old life. I knew that I was walking with Jesus. I was walking with God. I know that there's a Father who loves me. There's a Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. And I was going to walk with them the rest of my life. There's no turning back. But I didn't know nothing about nothing. I didn't know what God's word said about anything. I'll never forget when I got my first Bible, I went right to the first Italian chapter, Malachi. It was awesome. <laughs> a lot of good stuff about marriage and money. I'm telling you, if you're couples here, it's good stuff there. It's Malachi if you're new, if you've never read the Bible before. But, uh, but I didn't know what God's word said about drinking. I instinctively stopped doing all the drugs. I just knew it was, but I grew up where everyone drank. I just, I just, it was just a lifestyle for me. And I remember saved, going out with some co-workers. Carolyn was with me. I had my usual 20, 25 margaritas. That night, and I wound up in the hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. Well, they run all these tests on me, and they said, Bill, your heart's fine, but we ran some blood work on you, and you need, you need to go talk to your, your doctor. I spoke to my doctor. My doctor said, uh, well, there's some things wrong with your liver. You have hepatitis. And after asking me a series of questions, she said, we're pretty sure you have the AIDS virus too. But it's going to take uh, about a week, about seven days, to get those blood results back to confirm it. That's sort of my introduction to Christianity. And, uh, but I didn't care. See, by this time, even before I even found a church, I found a group of guys from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes that believed in me that rallied around me, that made it their life mission to disciple me, to mentor me, to make me a man of God, to make me a man of character, a man of principle. See, Carolyn didn't have a list. She just didn't have pray for Bill's salvation on her list. She had a list this long that God would make me a man of God, sold out for his purposes, a man of character and integrity. And she will tell you, that God's been answering that prayer over and over and over. And so that's why I'm forever indebted to an organization like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, because those guys, those guys were there for me early on. And when they heard about what happened to me, there was about 40, 50 guys at that meeting, and they just prayed for me. I was new to prayer. I didn't even know how to pray. I'm a big believer in the power of prayer. And those guys laid hands on me and started praying for me. They started praying for things I never heard of. They said, well, forget that report. We're going to trust in God's report. We're going to pray for a good report. We're going to pray that by your stripes, you are healed. 
that you don't have hepatitis, you don't have AIDS. I said, okay, that's great. This is awesome. And when I walked into the doctor's office a week later, Carolyn took me by the hand, and she looked at me, and she turned to me and said, Bill, doesn't matter what the doctors tell us. We've been through so much so far. God's not going to let us down now. You know what that's called? Faith. And she had it, and I wanted it, and I was living it out too. And we walked into that doctor's office, and that doctor looked at us sort of with a smile. She said, Bill, you had us fooled all week. New blood work came in, and the new blood work said, you don't have hepatitis, and you don't have AIDS. Wow. She said, you do have something wrong with your liver. It's just not, it's not life-threatening. You just can't drink for the rest of your life, and you got to stay happy the rest of your life. You think you can do that? I said, I think I can do that. <laughs> but friends, the reality is that God healed me, and he healed me with a message. He healed me with a message that I was going to be free. I was going to be sober. I was going to recover. And I was going to be a disciple. And by God's grace, I'm walking close to 20 years free of all my chains, all my addictions, alcohol, drugs, sex. Still working on the rock and roll stuff. So I just, started, I just started running after God. I, I truly believe that becoming a disciple, becoming a fully fo devoted follower of Jesus Christ was the pathway that God ordained for me. There was no other pathway but to just go all in with God, to be a student of his word, to, be, to, be, uh, to learn how to pray because there is a way to pray and get results. There is a way to pray and get into the throne room of God. There is a way to pray and move the hand of God. There's a way to pray and experience God. I'm running after God with everything that I got, but I was missing out on something. I was really missing out on something. Because I believed everything. I, I would stand here and tell you that when the Son of God sets you free, you are free indeed. I would proclaim it everywhere. But I was missing out on something. You know what I was missing out on? It was God's peace. I read about it. I believed it. When he said, the peace I give you, the world doesn't offer, I said, that's, that's good. The problem was I wasn't experiencing it. I believed it. And the reason why is because I had forgiven everyone else in my life. But I had never brought myself to a place where I could forgive the guy that assaulted me, that took away my innocence. I hated the guy. I really hated the guy. And even after being saved and forgiven of everything that I've been forgiven of, I walked around with bitterness. And I, I entertain thoughts of having the guy killed. I know people that'll kill people for a living. Oh, trust me, you don't want me to relapse. <laughs> I mean. I say that nicely. And... Uh, I, this is how I thought as a follower of Jesus. This is how I thought of a man who has been forgiven of so much. But I remember going to my first men's conference, going to a Promise Keeper event with 65,000 guys in Indianapolis. And I remember a speaker getting up saying, if there's anybody in this room tonight, in this arena, 
that's walking around with bitterness and unforgiveness. God wants you to surrender that to him tonight. And if you do, God's going to do two things. One, he's going to give you his peace. Two, he's going to use you in great ways. And I remember just being in tears under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just, just in tears. Knowing that God wanted me to, to forgive that man. And even before I can get the words out, God, God, I heard, yes, yes, you need to forgive that man. And I remember praying this prayer. And the prayer was, God, first forgive me for holding on to this thing. And then I prayed this prayer. And I never, I never felt this, I never thought this, never imagined this, but I will tell you that this prayer came from a deep place in my heart. And I said, Lord, the same salvation that you've shown me, I want you to show that man that sexually assaulted me. And the same forgiveness you've given me, I want you to show him. I forgive him, and I want you to forgive him because I want him in heaven. And when I see him in heaven, I'm going to give him a hug, and I'm going to tell him I love him. And I meant it, and I still mean it. And all I can tell you is that at that moment, at that moment, I felt God's peace come over me. And I had another encounter with God that changed me forever. You see, I had an encounter because I chose the freedom of forgiveness and I moved out of the bondage of bitterness. I had an encounter that took away all the pain and everything. And so I remember what that speaker said, that, you'll, that God wants to give you his peace and he'll start using you in great ways. Well, it wasn't long after that where I was, just a couple months after that where I was asked to share my testimony. This testimony, which I've been sharing ever since. Now God did a third thing. I like to call this the bonus plan. All those feelings of bitterness, rage, and anger, which was still sort of, taking root, still had a root in my life, God just ripped them out. And I didn't even realize it. But he just made me a lot more gentler, nicer, kinder. I didn't realize it, that all these changes were actually taking place. Until Christmas Eve later that year, and my little baby girl was about that big at the time, she said, Daddy, why don't you read the Christmas story to me? I thought, wow, this is awesome. My baby girl's asking me to read the Christmas story to her. So I open up the Christmas story in the Bible, and I start reading. And as I'm reading the Christmas story to her, my little girl looks at me, and she says this to me. She says, Daddy, she's in tears, by the way. She said, Daddy, I used to be so afraid of you. You know, parents, your kids know who you are. They know where you've been. They know where you are today. They know where you're going tomorrow. My daughter knew me like a book. You, you don't have a comeback for that. And I got a comeback for everything. She said, Daddy, I used to be so afraid of you. I didn't say a single word. But then she said this, but Daddy, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Because God has changed your life. And it was the best Christmas. 
we've ever, ever had. Now, friends, I want to tell you that I, I never, ever laid my hands on my family, but my, my voice could hurt worse than most of your punches. And a harsh voice can do more damage than a physical touch. And that's the damage I inflicted on my family. But God healed us, and I'm still amazed today at how God has restored our family. It wasn't long ago that my daughter asked me to walk her down the aisle and actually perform her wedding ceremony. And now she's the mother of a three-and-a-half-year-old future NBA Hall of Famer. (laughs) And in the middle of February, Lord willing, she's going to give birth to the most spoiled little girl ever. And the hardest thing I ever did was perform her wedding ceremony. Let me share one more thing, and then I got to share two more things. (laughs) The greatest call I ever got. She was 16 years old. She went away to her first camp. And she calls me and Carolyn up about midnight, in the middle of the night. And then she uh, she was just in a panic. Her voice was in a panic. Carolyn answered the phone, I got to speak to Dad. I got to speak to Dad. All right, all right, all right. I said, honey, what's wrong? What's wrong? And my little daughter, my little girl, Kristen, says, Daddy, shut up and just listen. She got that from me. So (laughs) here's what my daughter told me. She says, Daddy, I I want you to know something. I want you to know that I know how much you really love me. And Daddy, I want you to know how much I really love you. I'm just, I'm just in tears. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know how to respond to that. Then she said this. But daddy, you want to know what's even better than that? I said, What, honey? What could be better than that? She goes, I have a father in heaven who loves me even more, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ tonight. And I want you to know I'm going to live my life for Him. Friends, it was the best phone call I ever got, ever. God has restored my family. There's a couple of things that I said, that I told God. I've been fighting God just like you. You ever, you, you ever, you ever have God tell you something and you said, eh, no way. <laughs> well, two things I always told God. God, I'll never be a pastor. <laughs> I'll never be in ministry. Well, here I am, a pastor. And so, um, and I got introduced to Recovery. After I got discipled, and I combined the two, and I got introduced to a wonderful program called Celebrate Recovery, which I'm forever indebted to, that I love the program. I love what it stands for. But I always knew that for myself and the people that I led it for, the one question I can never answer enough is, well, what's next? What's next? Because everyone wanted to know what it meant to be a disciple. People wanted to know what their identity was. People wanted to know what it meant to be a child of the one true king, that you're accepted, secure, significant in Christ. People wanted to know how to take their thoughts captive. People wanted to know how to put on the armor of God each and every day. People wanted to know how they can apply the word of God to their lives each and every day in in a practical way. People wanted to know, who is this Holy Spirit? How does he live? Where does he live? How does he operate? How can I be filled? How can I be empowered? How can I be led? How can I be guided? How 
loved and, and empowered and walking with the Spirit, by the Spirit, being Spirit-minded, being Spirit-guided. How can I be a kingdom-minded person all about kingdom business, about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and all these things which were not in a recovery curriculum, but when you combine recovery and discipleship, you've got a powerful program. And that's what I've been working on and living out and leading out for the past nine years, and that's what brings us to Encounter. And that's what Encounter is all about. And so I'm going to... If you've been with me and been a part of, of what I've been doing for the past three and a half years, the journey does continue. Welcome back to your forever family. If you're new here, if you're new here and you're wondering, what is this encounter all about? Well, if you can combine discipleship, recovery, evangelism, and community all together, all together, You've got something that I don't think anyone else is doing where people are going to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and live the abundant life that Jesus Christ died for because if you're not living that abundant life, you're living underneath your privilege as a child of the one true king. And that's what Encounter is all about. It is a spiritual growth discipleship program for the broken and hurting, and that's all of us. All of us are broken and hurting because we live in a broken world. Amen? Amen. 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 I want to invite you next. Well, listen. Let me just wrap this thing up, okay? I just want to share a story, and I'm just going to bring this thing to a close. The worship team could come on up. Uh, my friends at that FCA group, they were pretty radical. And uh, they always said, Bill, when you go back home, go visit this church. You're going to love this church, a church called Times Square Church in New York City with David Wilkinson. I don't know if you ever heard of Nikki Cruz, The Cross and the Switchblade, the movie. And I was so excited to go to this church. Never been there before. And this is my first time back as a Christian in New York. I was so excited. Couldn't wait to get to this church. Got to this church, went to the lobby. And there were three Italian guys, looked like Italian guys from my neighborhood, looked like Vinny, Louie, and Tony. And they're all in a corner, and they're arguing. And I'm upset that they're arguing in a church. And I walk over, and I see, I get, I get closer to them, I realize they're not arguing at all. They're just talking scripture. One guy had his Bible open, he said, no, right there, Jesus said it in Matthew, right there, right there. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Wow, Christianity with an attitude. I'm like right at home, New York, you know what I mean? <laughs> and without having another thought, I remember walking into the sanctuary. The sanctuary. And someone came up behind me and just gave me this big old bear hug. I'm a hugger. I love hugging people. Now I'm going to hang around. I'd love, I'd love to, to pray with you and hug you, as many of you as I can tonight. Let you know that God loves you. And a guy came up to me and gave me this big old tight bear hug. And I thought, well, must be a friend of mine that I grew up with. Must be a guy that I work with because I worked right around the corner from the church. And I looked to my right, and I looked to my left, and 
There was nobody there. Nobody was there. But the two arms were still there. Two arms were holding me this tight. And I remember just getting on my knees, just crying uncontrollably in the middle of this church lobby floor. And after about five minutes, Carolyn quickly realized what was happening. She knew that I was having an encounter. And as I'm just crying uncontrollably, friends, these are tears of joy now. I heard this voice from my father. He says, Bill, I've been here all your life. I've been here loving you, watching over you, pursuing you. And I just wanted to welcome you home. Let you know that I love you. It was an encounter that changed my life. Because I started my story by telling you I grew up without the touch of a physical father. But that day, I felt the touch of my heavenly father. I have a father who loves me, who sent his son to die for me, who broke all my chains. And friends, by God's grace, all my chains are gone. And before I say thanks for letting me share, that's not how I'm supposed to end this. God didn't send you here today just for you to hear a testimony. And maybe you came for Hosanna Poetry, and I apologize again. But God sent you here tonight so that you can know that God would never give up on you and that God loves you despite you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, tonight's your night. This is why we do what we do. And for those of us that have given our lives to Jesus Christ, how are you doing on your grace challenges? Tonight you can choose the freedom or forgiveness and move out of the bondage of bitterness. By just simply choosing to forgive from your heart. And even as I'm saying that, there are names popping in your head right now that you know you need to forgive. But you've never been able to forgive. Ever. I want to invite you to come forward. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to, is going to play. God, I just pray for anyone right here. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, just say this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I turn from my sins, and I trust in you and you alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I put my faith and trust in you. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to live 
a life fully devoted to you. And Lord, there's some people that have done some bad things to me that I've never been able to forgive. And tonight, I choose to forgive from my heart whatever they did to me. I forgive them completely. Holy Spirit, help me lock that door of unforgiveness and hate and bitterness and help me never to go there again. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.